Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. And if you haven't already subscribed, why don't you do so? Even better, if you know someone who would like the podcast and would like to subscribe, why don't you tell them? And take it a step further by leaving us a review on iTunes. It is, as I've mentioned before, essential according to people that know about these things because it pushes us up the charts and allows us to do all those things that we do down here. Today, I have Phil Davis on the podcast. Phil is currently head coach at Namibia. I've met him previously through his RGC links and... He's also coached Leeds, Tlethley Scarlets, Cardiff Blues. A very interesting guy. I imagine we're going to be finding a lot out today about rugby, which we had no idea about, particularly about the smaller nations. I know Phil's just been at Nations Cup, so that'll make for some interesting conversation. Before we do any of that, though, quick thank you to our sponsor, Field & Flower. Field & Flower supply delicious grass-fed meat direct to your door. All you need to do is go on their website, choose one of their many, many boxes, or make it your own box using a choice of 170 cuts of meat or fish, and it'll just be delivered to your door. As easy as that. No messing around in supermarkets or going out with shopping lists. Just go online. But make sure you use our code RUGBY20. If you do so, you will get a discount, which lets them know that you came through us, which is great because they've supported us, you've supported them. And honestly, I can't believe how many of you have taken this up so far. It's been really helpful to both myself and, and the other lads from Egg Chasers running this place and just, you know, doing what we do on the Rugby Dungeon. I'm not going to keep you any longer. The next voice you will hear is Phil Davis as we are talking about rugby, obviously. Enjoy it. Good evening. Uh, nice to nice to join you. Uh, looking forward to the podcast. No, thank you. Now, I understand you've, you've just been away. Yes. <laughs> yes. I've, um, I've finished finished my work with, with, uh, with RGC in North Wales, uh, coaching there, mm-hmm. uh, sort of 14th of May and then... I went to Namibia, uh, where I, you know, where I'm currently the head coach of the Namibia national team, and I went out there on the 18th of May uh, uh, for six test matches and returned on the 7th of August. So, um, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty long stretch um, away from home. Yeah, but, but you know, very, very exciting. Not just coaching. And preparing the team to play test matches, but also looking at, you know, developing the infrastructure, of the rugby to, you know, to improve, you know, rugby in Namibia, you know, increase participation, improve the standards, you know, set an academy up. So it's a bit of a wide ranging role, but, you know, really enjoyable, you know. Yeah, it really sounds like it. 
so what would we find if we landed in Namibia now and we wanted to play rugby? What what kind of standards are there? What's already in place? You'd uh, put it this way: you'd find you'd find fantastic weather. It never rains there. It's always blue skies and sun. That's uh, not good for me. Which yeah, which means the grounds are quite you know quite um, reasonably hard, reasonably firm, but you know, but not bone you know not bone uh, you know not rock hard sort of thing. But you'd also find you can have a good beer after the game. It's got the best lager in the world, <laughs> as I keep getting told. But all naturally brewed stuff under under German law, Windhoek Lager, very that's, nice. That's going to say, is that because it's an ex-German colony? Am I have I got that right? Yeah, there is. There's a huge huge German influence uh, uh, that has been there over the years, and you know there's still down on the coastline, which uh, Wolfers Bay and Schwakopmund, which is um, uh, the main port, really. Wolfers Bay is the main port, you know, where all the goods really come into Namibia, you know, and that is really, you know, is a huge German influence down there in terms of architecture and and business practice. So it's it's a it's a beautiful part of the of the world, but it's a sort of gateway to anything that comes in by sea, any goods and the like. That's where it gets transported from all around Namibia, you know. Okay, so are they okay with English there, or is it uh, first language German or Afrikaans? No, they they say actually when you look at the tourist brochures, they say that English is the first language, but it's not really. It's Afrikaans and English. You know, Afrikaans. You know, first that we find in English, second, although you know, although uh, English is frequently spoken, you know, when they get passionate, they always revert to Afrikaans. You know. What is the actual standard of play like there? Have, have they got a, um, a, a league system, that kind of thing? Yeah, no. Well, it's 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 quite interesting. Namibia, you know, uh, has been independent for twenty five years, and obviously it was Southwest Africa. Uh, so it's been playing. They've been playing rugby there for over a hundred years. And in fact, it's a centenary this November oh. of rugby in that part of you know of the world. So it's it's not a huge amount of people playing rugby, JB. There's only thirteen hundred registered players playing rugby so it's a real small um you know play-in population if you like the, the population of the country is just under three million okay so it's not a, you know so it's a similar demographic to wales or new zealand in some way but the you know the number of people playing rugby is very is very small and when you consider that we're you know qualifying for world cups and beating teams like kenya We've got thirty thousand people playing rugby in a population of forty million. You know, we do we sort of bat above. You know, we do punch above our weight in many ways. Um, but uh, you know, and a big challenge, of course, moving forward is to try to increase the player numbers for them to continue to be mm-hmm. able to dominate the second. You know, the second tier, or be uh, you know, or to retain the position of number two to South Africa in Africa. You know, that's or, you that's know. interesting. Then, so that tells me. If you've got three million people, only thirteen hundred players, there must be a high quality of player coming from somewhere. Then, uh, is it all kind of concentrated on a certain number of schools, or just a cu- or just a couple of clubs? Yeah, it's. I'll answer your question, oh, JB, I suppose. Yeah, there's um, <laughs> there's there's eight Premier League clubs in Namibia, really, and that's about it. There's, you know, there's there's a very good school system. Um, there's 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 not a, a sort of a university competition that's sort of in South Africa the Varsity Cup there. Mm. So you, we've got you know there are some there are about eight or twelve 
schools in them a bit of a pretty well out of six of that twelve are a pretty good rugby standard. You know, very similar to yeah. um, maybe Millfield College back home or Stonyhurst College. Wow. Or Rydal Rydal School, for example. Or Saint David's it, College. Don't forget them. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> there's, you know, it's there's some good schools there, but there's a vacuum then between when they leave school and when they, you know, when they get into the sort of international pathway. The vacuum is a bit sparse between club rugby players going over to South Africa to play. So we lose a lot of players in our vacuum. So, you know, the idea is to try to grow the club game from eight clubs to twelve. Yeah. Uh, try to create the national academy, which links you know, into the school. So when they come out to 16, 18 years of age, whenever they leave school, there's a national academy to come through the under-19s and under-20s for Namibia. And then, you know, they can go through the Curry Cup. Yes. Now, there is already... Rugby, you know? Is there already a team from Namibia in the Curry Cup? Have I got yeah, that wrong? There is. We, we, we started this year. It's not been a successful year from a results point of view, but... Um, you know, we've we've not had much of an influence on that um, from an international perspective as yet, uh, and it's been run by one of the a couple of the local coaches there. And they've had a tough time, but you know they've competed in there, they've learned, and they're in there for another three years. So, you know, the pathway is pretty good now. It's you know, it's club rugby. Club rugby have got a sort of a community cup, <coughs> they call it, which is basically like. In, in this country, you'd have the championship, um, sorry, you'd have the premiership in England, and then you'd have the LV Cup, you know? Yes. So it's a similar type of of concept, although the standard of rugby there is sort of lower end of the championship, National Division 1 in England, or the lower end of the premiership in Wales, semi-professional premiership, and the top of the championship. So that's a standard, but... The, the the pathway is improving, as I say. You've got the club rugby, then you've got a, a a gold cup, which is, as I said earlier, a little bit equivalent to the LV Cup. It's another level up. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've got the Curry Cup, and then you've got the international rugby. So there's a pretty good pathway um, that just needs, you know, continued development, and it needs, you know, improved physical, mental, technical, tactical skills, you know, by, you know, improving the players and try to, you know, improve the high performance uh, programs within the country itself, JB. And to do that, you've got to, you've got to create, you know, capability and capacity by, by, by upskilling the coaches, the physios, the strength and conditioners, the video analysts. So there's a real project of development across the board, mate, you know, yeah, it sounds like a very vast uh, role that you've been handed here. Because not only have you got to look at literally upskilling the players, passing, catching, you've also got to look at the structures and then, you know, maybe set up a new team. I, I assume if they're in the Curry Cup as well, does that mean they're under the guise of one of the South African franchises? No, they're not. No, they're not. They, You know, it's a separate... The Velvetchers is called, which is uh, which is the nickname of the national team, which is, which is a, a big... It looks like a big cabbage, actually, uh, <laughs> but it's a, inspirational. It's, it's, it's a plant. Um, it's it's a plant that grows in a desert. It's very, very, very resilient. But yeah, it's it's a big. You know, it looks when you when it when it's planted in the ground. I suppose it looks like a big. You know, like a like a yeah. I think a cabbage is not a bad 
not a bad um, not a bad sort of metaphor for it really, but it's a, <laughs> and that's the nickname of them, and, and it's just a separate entity to any of the franchises. You know, in in ten years' time, you never know. You you know, we could Namibia could grow uh, a super league, uh, a super rugby franchise. You never know, mate. You know, you never know. So the participation numbers for rugby in Namibia aren't huge. What is the amount of people watching rugby like? And are they more influenced by South Africa than anyone else? Well, there's a big, you know, there's a big, you know, what we want to do is when, when kids come out of school now, their parents want them to go and play for the Springboks, you know, that's the way, the way it is. But yes, what we want to try and do is give them an alternative where they come out of, you know, schools rugby or they join our pathway at, you know, 14, 16 years of age and they can see a route through to play in, you know, club rugby, Curry Cup rugby, international rugby, and, and going on and playing in World Cups or, you know, playing in the Nations Cup, um, you know, which is which is what we do every year. It's been in Romania for the past few years. So, you know, you, that's a big challenge for us to get them to, to see that there is another route to mm. playing international rugby. And if you're a Namibian, you know, you don't really have to go overseas to achieve your goals as a rugby player, but that's not quite in place presently and that's what we need to develop you know so when you are looking to pick the national side i, I assume you are pick well you are picking the national side yes um yeah, i am one of the selectors yes <laughs> <laughs> in a very complicated situation but anyway oh we'll get into that are you looking as well at namibian qualified players that might not be in the pathway or the system but might be playing curry cup over in south africa yeah, we do, and we've got we've got three categories of players. Really, we've got a very small number of professional players, mm-hmm. like Ronaldo Botma, for example, who's the captain who's playing at the Bulls. Right, uh, uh, and we've got Torsten van uh, van Zeled, who's um, the hooker with the Cheetahs. So we've got a couple of Super Rugby players, but thereafter, then we got semi-professional rugby players who play varsity cup rugby in South Africa for either the University of Johannesburg or for um, uh, for Marty's in the Cape Town area, you know. Mm. Um, um, and then we've got the local players that actually play in Namibia. So we've got a very diverse group of players. We're going to try and, you know, mould that sort of demographic of player into one cohesive unit when you play international rugby. And it's quite challenging. Mm. That's why we're putting so much effort to try to develop a high-performance centre uh, a skills curriculum or a national academy, I should say, that that that, that provides a, a, a periodized daily training environment over twelve months for the local base players, so we can keep upskilling them, you know, technically, tactically, but also physically, they're growing and mentally growing, so they're getting near to the standards they need to play international yeah. rugby or Super Rugby. So that's the big challenge: um, is ma- is marrying those three together and. You know, because the professional players and the semi-professional players in South Africa, their programs are pretty consistent, and they come to us at a decent level. But the local players that make up over fifty percent of the squad uh, need that extra work, which w- they will only get by having a consistent DTE. You know. Okay, so what would be the process if you've got a very good local player? who you think could go further. Are you trying to keep them within your system there or are you encouraging them to go then to the Super Rugby or the Curry Cup in South Africa? 
Yeah, we're always trying to. It's like everything. It's like England, Wales, Scotland. You're always going to have players playing abroad. And what we need at the moment is we try to have like a cuckoo's nest approach in a way where we will send players, you know, to other parts of the world, if you like, to to you know to to play at a higher level of competition because we haven't got a Super Rugby or a Varsity Cup standard or Curry Cup for that matter standard of rugby in Namibia where the teams these boys are playing for and the coaching they're receiving is competitive and of a good level, you know. So have you so, ever had a situation where you wanted to pick a player for Namibia? Because I'm assuming now, and I could be wrong, you need to get these guys capped early because if the future superstars, for instance, if you sent Jack Berger over to Saracens age 21 without capping him, you might have lost him to England. Yeah, oh, it's a huge danger, that's for sure. But what we're, what we're trying to do is... Is we have a selection process where we look at five key categories: size, speed, skill, character, and intelligence. And and we look we look at those five things, and then we look at what standards they need if they're a second row, what standards they need to play tier one level, what standards they need to play super rugby. And then we look then obviously then we look at potential. And it's always a gamble, is trying to look at the player in respect of what he could be rather than what he is today. Yes. So. For example, we've got a young Namibian second row now, which is a hot spot in our in our succession planning. You know, we struggle with props, we struggle with locks, and we struggle with centres, um, and we struggle with um, not centres. I apologise. We struggle with fly halves. Mm. So wherever our hot spots are, we're looking to you know try to develop and introduce players of promise and potential, and. We've done that with one of our locks. He's about two metres, just over two metres three. And I'm hoping to bring him over to Wales to play semi-professional rugby with uh, with a club, with Merthyr, basically, who, you know, I know the coaches there. Dale McIntosh is an excellent uh, technical forwards coach. Have you got Jamie Ringer there as well? Yeah, Jamie's there and Lee Jarvis. So That's they're right, going yeah. into, a, and, you know, and the facilities at Merthyr are as as you know, very compatible to RGC in a way, excellent facility. So I'm trying to bring him over. Now, he's only 21 and his ambition is to play in the next World Cup. So he's got, we've got sort of two and a half years mm. where we can, you know, hopefully have him play in semi-professional rugby, training week, you know, training day in, day out. Um, and, and hopefully we'll end up getting, you know, a more advanced rugby player by doing that than we or by putting him through that process than we would if he actually just stayed in Namibia, you know. Okay, just go back a second. You said you've got criteria, uh, strength, size, all those sort of things. Yeah. Have you set those criteria yourself or are they kind of internationally recognised or is this a common standard that coaches use? Yeah, I, I we've set up, you know, I, I, a lot of coaches will have different sort of profiles in their mind for selection, but... You know, we look size, speed, skill, and what I say to the players there and the conditioners is, look, let's try and let's not try and make him somebody he's not. You know, mm-hmm. um, let's try and get him to maximise his potential in those three areas. You know, and then character comes down to mental skills in many ways. You know, turning up on time. You know, being you know being uh, you know being disciplined. Intelligence just means knowing your role in the team. You know, knowing that you know if you're a lineout forward that you know the lineout calls, for example. You know, yeah. Uh, so that's the way we look at. And when we finally select a team, we'll we'll balance it by looking at versatility because you can only sometimes ever take 27 players on on a trip. 
Mm-hmm. We look at versatility, durability, and current form. And sometimes when players may, you know, be quite even um, on the five key characteristics, maybe their current form isn't right, maybe their durability isn't right because they've had injury problems, you know. So you've got to try and look at something that can summarise uh, the the you know the selection or just you know a couple of key things that can make the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, to to the to the team's uh, consistency of performance over a tournament. Well, you're one of the few men that would know what selecting a national team is like. So, you just alluded to that before. How do you select the team? In, in Namibia, it's complicated because there's a board that you know that you you've got to go through, and the president's got to sign the team off and everything. So, it's very very important to have a clear objective selection process, like I've you know just explained. And the way, you know, we I'll, I'll put the team together and we'll say, right, OK, uh, tier one level, we, we have six players at tier one level. OK, and tier, that means they're in the green bracket, right? They're in the green, which means they can play for 80 minutes at tier one level. And then you might have, uh, maybe you have eight in that, as I say, or six in that. Then you'll have another, you'll have another maybe uh, 10 that are, in the amber zone, which means they can play for 50 minutes at tier one level. And then you have another 11 players, maybe, that make up your, your group, uh, or, uh, or another eight or nine, whatever it is. They are in the red column, and they can play for 30 minutes at tier one level. So you end up potentially picking your team on a traffic light system. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. And, it becomes, and it becomes a 23-man squad then, because we haven't got... 23 players who can play at tier one level for 80 minutes. Um, and that's, you know, there's universal statistics there in terms of ball in play and meters run, etc., etc. So that's how we, you know, when we went to the World Cup, that's how we had to pick the team. Um, so, you know, in ter- as well as we got the f- five key criteria, we picked it on a traffic light system yeah. so that we we knew, you know, we could make sure that every 23 that we selected could give us an 80-minute performance. You know, it's not it's not an exact science when the game starts because no. some players sometimes play above themselves, JB, with ad- adrenaline, etc. So, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it on a match day. But you've got to have a process and a plan really, that you go into a match mm. and you've got as many bases covered as you possibly can when you're dealing with Tier 2 nations, you know? Yeah, and I guess the other thing would be, if you don't give the player the opportunity to play 80 minutes, how will you ever know that he can or cannot play 80 minutes? I always say opportunity is equally as important as talent in a lot of cases. In fact, as proved by Namibia and RGC. Yeah, ab- yeah absolutely. I think it's just, you know, you can do a lot by... You know, by making sure that your mindset's right and getting the players to, to to train a lot. You know, we did that at RGC last year. You know, in particular, where we pushed the players, they were amazing, and I think they, in the end, they surprised themselves in in how well they were playing and how fit they actually got. You know, mm. uh, and they're a, they were, you know, they're a fantastic bunch of players to to work with. You know, as one of my you know most satisfying coaching experiences. You know, one because we achieved the outcome that. Everybody wanted, but but the main thing was the the reaction of the players were was was fantastic. You know the way they worked was, 
you know, they're a huge credit to themselves and to the region as well, you know. Yeah, they're a good bunch of lads. And I think because it is really a region, it represents all the clubs, it represents North, North Wales. There's a lot of pride behind that team and, uh, and you know, and what they do for that area. Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, I feel, you know, I've always believed, you know, going back, I don't know, 10, 12 years when I was speaking to Pereda Jenkins, who was, who's been from Dolgetla, who's been a member of the, you know, the board of the WRU for a for a long, long time, a great servant of Welsh rugby. And, you know, him and I always spoke, you know, when I was at the Scarlets initially, you know, even when I was in Leeds, how much of a um, an opportunity there is for North Wales to become, you know, I think it could become a fifth region, given the right progression, development, you know, the demographics up there, economically, they're good. Rugby, you know, talent-wise, they're good. Mm. You know, it's just a case of, of them being exposed to the level of rugby on a consistent basis. And, you know, they could be the next Connacht, for example. I really believe that, you know. Well, you look at the demographics. I mean, people say that North Wales is too sparsely populated. There's not enough demand for rugby there. For those people that say that, I say, you know, come up to an RGC. Come and see when the when the under-20s are playing. You you will see that there is an appetite for, uh, for rugby. And in terms of population, I mean, we've got something like a third of the Welsh population underneath the RGC banner as a region. And you know, I think the region does actually represent those people. Yeah, it'll, t- it'll take time. You know, the people who say that, they're, they're, they're talking nonsense. And maybe they just don't, you know, they with respect, everybody's entitled their opinion. But you've got to have a, you know, you need, you need to know your facts if you're going to make an opinion on something like, you know, uh, like North Wales. And there's a mass, there's a huge appetite for rugby. Yeah. Uh, and, and an enthusiastic appetite at that. And, you know, um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It, a huge future. I mean, it's crazy. If you are in North Wales on an international weekend, you just see the people flooding down to Cardiff. Trains uh, train, uh, tra- trains are full. Uh, but sadly, it's not that easy to get to South Wales, as uh, I'm sure that you probably appreciate. Uh, but yeah, huge, huge appetite. And uh, another really good example of that, the Celtic Crusaders actually by accident ended up being a North Wales rugby team. We never expected to have a rugby league team, but they're one of the best attended Super League teams for a couple of years that they're in Wrexham. So yeah, absolutely the appetite there. Just moving on from that, we had um, a blogger on last week who is very into Welsh regions and had a few things to say. More political things, so you know, feel free not to go down this route. But the basic conversation went along the lines of the only real region in South Wales is Ospreys because they're a combination of two clubs and everything else is a bit of a super, a super club and that's why they're not appealing to the vast majority of Welsh fans. For instance, you don't get Ponta Preeth fans going to watch Cardiff. What's your view on all that? I think, you know, I think when you look at the attendances and when, you know, when you look at, you know, it is a political view in some ways, but, you know, it's you don't see the numbers. The population, you know, the general pop- Welsh population has increased, not decreased, since we were playing in the nineties, mm. late nineties, early two thousands. So the crowds are not the same as they were then when you had Llanelli, Cardiff, Ponapreeth, etc. But you know, professionalism has come in, and Wales being the country it is, we you know, obviously we can't sustain a 12 or a 16-team professional league. We just simply haven't got the money to do that. But I think I agree with the... I I agree with the the blogger in terms of the Ospreys. I think they have the the most effective regional concept 
in terms of you know development, you know, and trying to get bums on seats. I think the Scarlets have got a good regional concept, uh, but you know it's 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 slowly growing. The Dragons, are they the Dragons or are they Newport Gwent Dragons? Yeah. I don't know. Um, and you know the Blues are the Blues. You know they're Cardiff, the capital team. There's always. You know, there's always been healthy tension in all the rivalries, which is a good thing, JB, which is what Welsh rugby is all about. But I think all of the regions within the regions themselves, the staff and, and the people who work there and the players, I think everybody's trying exceptionally hard to make a success of it. But whether they're pushing the right buttons out in the communities to get people's passion and enthusiasm up to go and watch them on a regular basis, I'm not sure. But, you know, TV, you know, the game is saturated on TV in Wales. You know, you've got, you know, you've got Sky, you've got BT Sport, you've got S4C, you've got BBC Scrum 5, who I, you know, I work for. And I think, do, you know, they do a, a terrific job mm -hmm. of promoting the game in Wales. Um, so I think everybody's trying hard. But, you know, is it a golden nugget that's not being put in front of, of, of the general rugby public in Wales nowadays for them to actually go and support you know, the teams in the numbers that they used to mm. years ago. You know, I'm not sure, Matt. You know, I'm I'm really not sure. I know everybody's trying hard, that is for sure. But whether it's working, sometimes your attendances will suggest that it's not. But I don't think it's for the want of trying either, you know. No, I mean, I'm relatively new to this subject. I just assumed that the regions weren't... I, in fact, you know, I didn't even know why the regions weren't really attracting crowds. I just knew it wasn't particularly successful. I didn't really like watching pro 12 but uh yeah after speaking to gary powell it's uh it, it puts it in a whole new light and i'm not sure what the answer is no it's it's you know the answer is you know everybody says oh let's have more money let's have more money but you know sometimes just try to make more of less and you can do that if you think in a particular way you know like in leeds we you know we we always had a 12th our budget was always always 12th position the years we were in the premiership Yes. But, you know, in, in the four years, I know we got relegated in the fifth year, but in the four years, our average finish, I think, was about ninth or tenth. And that included two Heineken Cup qualifications and, you know, two Power Gen Cup semi-finals with us progressing to the final and winning it at one stage, you know. Yeah, so, you know, you, you you do need a certain level of money, that is for sure, but it's not the be-all and end-all sometimes either, you know. You've got to... You know, you've got to have a solution-focused mindset in in how you actually spend the money, and and sometimes you 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 know you can compete because you know you know the whole you know the team as a whole will always beat some of the parts, you know, and and if you you know and Connacht have have proved that this last year, you know, so it's you know it's a balance of what you do. And 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 obviously how how you do it in respect again the right quality in the in the club or in the region to play at a level that can that can bring you some success and I think once some of the regions start becoming regularly successful like the Ospreys have done over the period of the last ten years I think it is. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Or eight years, I think you, you may see the attendance improving. I think winning would certainly help paper over some cracks and it would go a long way to rectifying the situation. So hopefully this year we can have something a little bit more successful than last year when we've only got one Welsh team in the Highland Cup, which quite frankly is ridiculous. Yeah, we need a few more than we need more than one, that's for sure. Yeah. But you know, it's it's gonna make you know, I think the Pro Twelve will slowly but surely get better. More you know, there's more at stake nowadays in terms of qualification for Europe. So that just, you know, in, in the Viva Premiership you've got promotion relegation, which which gives you that that added edge and incentive. So hopefully that the same will will push through into the into the Pro Twelve over the next couple of years, you know. Well, I'm glad you brought up promotion and relegation. What is your view on that? You've been involved in the English game. You've been promoted and relegated. Uh, do, yeah. do you think it's a good idea? Yeah, look, it is what it is. There's it. It's in it's in the nature. Sorry, it's in the culture of our of our game of our sport in the southern hemisphere. Maybe not so much. Yeah. And the people who don't want, they will argue. You know, it gives you time to build a business, and and you know, it gets you, build gives you time to to build your squads and all that. And that's fine. But when you're not, when you are looking at relegation, it does keep, it does put an edge to you. Sometimes, you know, it does limit the way you want to play rugby, possibly because you 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 become a, you can become a little bit risk adverse. You know, yeah. um, but you know, I think it's a good thing personally. Because it adds, you know, it adds drama and it adds competitive nature to to the game itself, you know. And that's just my opinion. You know, we, you know, we used to play at Leeds. It was always tough for us, but you know, I was, we were always trying to play a certain style of rugby that would attract people to come and watch us play because we were in a rugby league on a rugby union hotbed. Uh, sorry, football hotbed. We had to try and, you know produce entertaining rugby and you know there is a lot of you know there's over 250 rugby teams in Yorkshire I think so there's a huge there's a huge passion for rugby league and rugby union but you know so there is a lot of it you know people understand the game up there but you know and we we were always competing against relegation we're always competing against soccer and rugby league so we you know we had a tough job in many ways but you know that's part of it made us part of the sports part of the competitive element that 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 you go through generally in life anyway so you know i think it's a good thing you can't have clubs you know it's it's sad sometimes like when you know london welsh went up a couple of years ago and they didn't have a, a great infrastructure behind them you've got to you know you've got to have you know a good infrastructure you've got to have a good academy you know you've got to have your training facilities your stadium you've got to have, you know you've got to have a basic level of professional staff playing squads so you know if if you know, if you do that, um, you know, you've got a chance to succeed in, you know, and you're ready to you're ready to be in there. You look at Exeter, they're the best example. I think Exeter yeah. were planning where they are now back in nineteen ninety-six, you know, when <laughs> probably when, you know, they they've been you know, they that's not you know, that's not an overnight success. They've had the the same people involved in our club for ten, 
15 years and they built a really strong foundation. You know, you can't build a castle on sand type yeah. of thing. And, and they built their castle on strong, strong foundations. And you've got to take your hat off to them. So there's a, is, a, is the Exeter way of doing it or is, you know, the Linda Welsh way of doing it, spending a lot of money and not really having much to show for it other than, you know, some good players and a good team that get you promoted one year, but then you're battling against the odds to stay up for the next year. And then when you go down, you know, where do you go then sort of thing, you know? So you've got to have the right infrastructure to, to move forward. And, you know, Harlequins have done it over the years and come back stronger. Northampton have done it, come back stronger. So, you know, Bristol have done it, come back stronger. So you've got to build the infrastructure of your club, you know, around academy, around young players, around, you know, the right facilities, the right staff. So there, there is a... There's a building process that you need to, you know, you need to adhere to if you want to be successful. But I think you've got to keep it there, you know. I completely agree. Um, you just mentioned process then. I wanted to get into it a little bit about being a director of rugby. You've been a director of rugby. Have I got this right? Well, you can count RGC at four clubs now. Yes. What is the process or is there even a process? If you land at, at a club, what would be the first thing that you do? I, I look at it, you know, I call it the three P's I do. I call it purpose, process, people. Okay. Um, and you have a look at, you know, you speak to the club, what's the purpose? What are the outcomes that you're trying to achieve? You know, your high performance process is pretty standard. You know, it's physical, mental, technical, tactical, lifestyle. Those are the sort of the key pillars medical, you've got performance analysis, you've got your structure. So the first thing, you know, I'd look at going in there is is what's the vision of the club? You know, what's the purpose? What does he want to achieve? Um, what's the process? I've just explained the process. And then you start looking at, you know, what the people that actually can deliver the vision for the club, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that comes down to, you know, a values-based approach. What, you know, what values do we need to you know, to achieve, you know, the vision or the purpose um, through the process that we got in place. So that's the key thing is identifying the vision and then looking at the structure and then looking at the people and then seeing if the three of them marry up and if they, you know, and if they do uh, or you have a plan to work towards the three, the three things marrying up over a period of time. And it normally takes you five years, really, three years to build a team. Yeah. And years four and five to start winning. So that's normally what it takes. But, you know, as we both know, that's the ideal programme. But the reality is you don't get that time anymore, you know? Yeah, I think the lo- the more we learn about rugby, particularly in the age of the salary cap and the academy. I mean, the academies are a massive game changer. You absolutely need five years. I used to laugh at... Um, Dean Ryan on my other podcast wrongly because he got relegated with Worcester and it was all a bit of a laugh and a joke. But when you actually understand the complexities of going to a club, overhauling the system, building an academy, bringing the players through, you're going to need need five years. He proved me wrong because he bought his club back and he stocked it with lots of good young talent. And that's exactly exactly what you need is five years, at least. Yeah, well, it, it, it's the same in Leeds, you know, when we started, we were a fourth division team, and it took us five years to get into the Premiership, and then it took us five years to build a team and win a trophy, so, you know, and the team we won the trophy with, five of those players have been with me for ten years. Uh, who were they? Uh, Mike Shelley was there, Tom Tom Palmer. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Mark Luffman was involved. 
so there were, you know, there were a few players that were in there. Dan Hyde, there were a few players there who'd been there a while, you know, Jimmy. So, yeah, it's 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 about you know, at the end of the day, it's if you're working with a rational board and a chairman who understands that progression is 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 the way forward, and sometimes it's a bit slower. And sometimes it gets a bit quicker, but you know, progressing. You know, one year you might win two out of six games in Europe. The following year you'll win four out of six games in Europe. You know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And that's progression. You know, and then it's you know it's the same as the league. You know, the league. You know, if you want to be, you know, if you want to be a top four team, you've got to have quality and challenging for trophies, and you've arguably got to have, you know, two. Like for like players in each position, two top level scrum halves, outside halves, you know, centre second rows, or maybe three second rows. So you've just got to have strength and depth, basically. So when you're talking about establishing the vision for the club and finding out if the personnel are right, are you talking literally bringing people in one by one for interviews, establishing what they think, and building it from there? Yeah, well, you you speak to you know you speak to the board really first of all, and you say you know you can ask them. Look, in the Mibia, we said like, what's our vision, for example, and you know, it was in Leeds, for example, we said, well, look, take Leeds as the example. We want to get in the Premiership. I said, okay, uh, what's that going to take then? And they said, oh, we got money, we got it, but you know, we haven't got we got a stadium. Headingly, we had a stadium. But you know we didn't have a good we didn't have a training ground for example you know we didn't yeah. have a training ground they wanted a, we had one one pitch with not a lot of facilities and they wanted to run a first team a second team a third team a junior section so you know what they wanted to do in that respect was unrealistic getting into the Premiership was realistic they had the stadium but we didn't have the training facilities we had a we had a little bit of money but that money wasn't going to last us ten years so. Mm. You know, the vision was to get in the Premiership. Yeah. And the only thing we had at the time was we knew we had a stadium, so we knew we didn't have to spend 10, 15 million on building a new ground. It was already there, so we had to set about putting an infrastructure in uh, to get to a full-time staffing level and to get to a full-time playing level, and that took us six years. Oh. Um, you know, because we started with one professional coach and two professional players, and then we slowly <laughs> built it over a period of time to get to... I think it was 78 players we had in varying age groups in the end and a staff of 15 full-time. Did you arrive at Leeds as a player first or was that were you there as a coach first? No, player. I, player. Thought... I, was, I was director of rugby, coach and player. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, you be, am I right in thinking that you learned the majority of stuff then at Leeds? Yeah, I, I got involved with uh, the RFU coach education programme, the elite coach education programme, which... Kevin Bowling was running, and there was a cohort of us, which includes Stuart Lancaster, Joe Lydon, Gary Gold, who's gone on to coach South Africa, who's currently at the Shark Super Rugby Team, yep. Nigel Redman, Joe Lydon, John Callard, Richard Hill, the scrum half. You know, we were all on a level five, the first level five course at Loughborough. Yes. Uh, so it was an 18-month course. So we, us, the group of us, were the first level f- uh, five coaches in, in England at that time, or in Europe, for that matter, at that time, you know. But so, it was quite, you know, it was it was, it was was excellent. I learned a lot from, you know, from Kevin and from the English elite coaching system. It's brilliant. Uh, I, I, I'm talking about the, you know, it was it was a continuous professional development pathway that Kevin put in, really, which was based... You know, at Loughborough for level five, well, it's now the level four because it's UKCC standardised. But 
Um, on Ashridge, we used to go to Ashridge Business School uh, on a on a you know three or four times a year, f- as well to, to mix with, with business people. So that was you know that was basically you know you've done you you've gone through your original badges like your one two threes as it was at that time then you know yeah uh, and this was really you you were invited onto this course if you were a director of rugby at the Premiership club so that was. A sort of a, a, a minimum criteria at that time, you know. Oh, I see. Because I know the Welsh regions have a criteria that you can only coach in Wales at regional level level if you are level five. Yeah, it's level four now, I think, JB. But yeah, I, I, I don't know about that, mate. I'm not sure. Uh, I think there's a few people coaching in Wales that haven't got level fours, I think. Yeah. I might be wrong, but um, yeah, so... I, I think your coaching badges are very, very important because it teaches you the coaching process, you know, the start, the middle and the end. And, mm. you know, the multidisciplinary nature of coaching now, which needs to include not just, you know, training sessions or drills on the field. It needs strength and conditioning input. It needs sports science input. It needs mental skills. It needs, um, you know, sports medicine. You know, it needs nutrition. So there's a real, there's a whole host of, of things now that make up a player's, you know, weekly training environment, you know, or support programme, you know. Yeah, I, I do tend to agree with that. Do you think we're going to see rugby staffs on the coaching side start to ex- start to expand rapidly uh, in the near future? Because all the things that you've just mentioned then, I think are almost impossible to find from one individual, even maybe a handful of ind- individuals. And I'd take it a step further... I think it's almost impossible to find from people just with rugby backgrounds. Um, you you know you've got to look at you know we get a sports scientist that works with us in the Midbier and 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 she you know she's never played a game in her life but she knows sports science she knows player monitoring and she's brilliant you know you know we got a nutritionist that we use um, uh, Rhys Dyer who's, who's got a company down in South Wales uh, MSC he helps in the Midbier you know he plays rugby he's he plays for Ponapool. So he he understands the game, you know. We got video analysts that we work with. Some have played, some haven't, you know. Yeah. So it's 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 getting a group of staff that 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 can deliver the multidisciplinary approach that you know that I mentioned earlier on. And you, if you look at it, they say you need one conditioner to every eight players. So, Is that right? You know that's that's the norm, and you could argue that's the same with physiotherapists, you know, with with rugby coaching, but. So, yeah, so, you know, when you think what you got, 8, 16, 24, 32, that's four conditioners for a rugby squad. And it's arguably three. You know, when we were at the Blues, we had two conditioners, one intern. We had three physios. We had a head physio, an assistant physio. Then we had a return to play physio, like a prehab and rehabilitation physio. You know, we had uh, part-time nutritionists coming in. We had we had two full-time analysts with two full-time interns from the university so you know we had about 18 staff working there and you know you look at Worcester you know I know Worcester I got five conditioners there you know four physios wow. something like that didn't anyway. that. so so it's a, you know it's a big it's a big big support staff you know so uh, as a director of rugby do you have in your mind exactly what your backroom staff would uh, w- would look like is that your ratio one conditioner to every eight yeah ideally yeah so you'd look at Normally having an assistant, uh, sorry, a head of physical performance, uh, a strength and conditioner coach, and then two interns. So you've got four in there. 
okay. And what about coaching then? What positions would you would you populate just for the rugby side? Um, you'd have you know you'd have a head coach, forwards coach, defence coach, backs coach, or if your head coach is a forward, that's covered. So you have a backs coach and a defence coach. So you, and then you know you can have a you can have a skills you know position specific or a skills coach as well if you wanted. But three is three. You can have your specialist coaches, but three main coaches are about are pretty good really. So you don't run the coaching on the same basis that you run the conditioners. You wouldn't say, well, I've got a large squad, thirty odd players. I want one um, one coach for every ten players, or one coach for every eight eight players. So you can have smaller manageable groups. Yeah, some sometimes if you if you've got a squad of thirty training and you've got you got one coach and you you know you get you split them up into three groups of uh, ten, you know you you can manage that to win passing skills, tackling skills, and and breakdown, for example. And then when you get into you know when you get into fifteen against fifteen, if you put a referee in there, he referees the game, so it means that you're gonna have one coach one end of the field, another coach the other end, and then another coach on the halfway line. Yeah. So you know, so when you're doing 15 against 15, I always like to use a referee because it allows the coaches. You know, you're gonna have a lead coach for every session. So if it's a defence coach, he's the lead coach, and mm-hmm. if there's any technical uh, input required uh, during a water break after after a period of play that the referees managed, he can go in and he can make his point, and then you get back out and off you go. But the other two coaches are observing. So you know, your observation skills. And, and your communication thereafter with the players and the actual lead coach is invaluable. So, because you know you watch, yeah. you know, you know you learn more by listening, and and you learn more by watching as well when you coach. So it's it's a balance you've got to you know that you've got to deliver. You know. Oh, so just to make it clear for our listeners, what level of detail would we be looking at now? If we if we went to a Premiership club or a regional club, how far in advance would they have the session plans? Uh, how detailed would those session plans be? What would we be experiencing? Well, you, you, first, first of all, you'd look at sort of a pla- plan, you know, plan action review. Yeah. You know, uh, PAR plan action review. We'd always have that as a process. You know, I like working. You know, I like working in threes. So I'll always either twenty-one days or three weeks. And the reason I like that is twenty-one days to change a habit or or, or create a new habit, if you like. Right. Very yeah. basic thinking. But it works. So I like to plan, action, reflect. I like to do things in blocks of three in terms of a development program uh, as a progressive coaching. So I always have my, I'll have a, I'll have a 12-month program broken down into three or four-week blocks, but three-week blocks ideally. Uh, so I'll work backwards and then I'll use red, amber, green from an intensity point of view. You know, so green is, is full on, amber is 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 high intensity movement but no contact and red is more of an organizational type session you know got you okay because i've watched rgc train and i've heard obviously from talking to the lads they do a lot of contact there probably more than i expected them to do and probably more than they than they expected to do yeah and i think the the thing was jb as i said earlier the one thing we had to do when i got there was allow them uh, or to give us the opportunity to one to manage the game, mm-hmm. and two to play at a higher intensity level than anybody else in the league because we were a young team yeah. and we didn't have the experience of everybody else. So what we had to do was try to get them, you know, fitter, stronger, faster, and 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 to be able to cope 
at a higher intensity. And we used to do contact on a Tuesday night, ten minutes. On a on a on a Wednesday night, maybe ten minutes. You know, we never yeah. used to do. 30, 40, 50 minutes of full contact. You know, we always had a referee in. But the time we did do it, develop their skills under pressure. And the work that we did on the field where we did a lot of situational training mm-hmm. with intensity allowed them to manage the game. You know, it's no good having a toolbox. You know, for example, you're gonna have a toolbox, but you know, you've got to know, you know, that you've got to you've got to know what to knock the wall down. You're not gonna use a trowel to knock a wall down, you're gonna use a sledgehammer. So yeah. the point is, you know, with the boys, they they had a way of playing, but you know, and they were organised to play, but they needed to know when to use each option, you know, in 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 certain circumstances or situations, and that was the reason for the intensity. It was the reason for the situational type training where you're doing game scenarios, you know. Yeah, uh, do you mind us? How much professional rugby do you watch at the moment? Do do you find that? Is valuable to what you do at Namibia. Yeah, no, we watch. You know, we watch the super. All the players watch Super Rugby, and yeah. the board watch Super Rugby. So you know, and Curry Cup Rugby. So I, you know, I make sure that I watch the rugby myself. You know, um, and and you know, you can look for new ideas. You can, you know, but what you've got to do, you've got to always bring those ideas back into context. You know, you can't. You know, if you've got a three wheel car, you can't go 150 miles an hour without toppling over, if you like. But if you've got a Ferrari, you can go 150 miles an hour quite nicely, you know. So it's making sure that, <coughs> you know, what the game that we're trying to play is, is is you know, relating to the skill level that we have with the players, you know. Because when you watch Super Rugby, you know, the players sometimes, you know, p- players will go, oh, let's try this move, let's try that move. And sometimes you can do that, but... There are lots of times where we simply haven't got the skill set to deliver what they're seeing on the TV. Yeah. So it's um, you know it's it's quite a it's quite an interesting balance you've got to hit sometimes when you're trying to develop your team without you know taking their sort of creative um, thought process out to them or making sure that they still realise they've got the intention to be skillful or to play and you've got to just try and you know grow that slowly but surely. To the, for the best effect and outcome that the, for the team, you know. So when was when was the last time you were watching rugby at the elite level? Thought that's really clever, uh, and then transferred that to the team. Or when's the last time that that a player did that to you? Um, well, watching New Zealand last week was was terrific. They just kept moving the ball into space as quickly as they possibly could, you know. Uh, and you know the communication must have been good for that to happen because. A lot of the time, they were going from the right-hand five-metre channel to the left-hand five-metre channel within three or four passes, you know. Um, so that you know that that was pretty good in terms of in terms of communication, good skill level, and, and spatial awareness. Um, the Lions, the the way the Lions play their Super Rugby in South Africa is terrific. Yeah, could you explain that a bit more in detail for us? In terms of the Lions, yes, please. Yeah, they, they. What I like, what I like about them, they, they, you know, they play with a massive intensity and accuracy. You know, from, you know, from the set piece. You know, and it's all about getting over the gain line. You know, so they run hard, but when they actually do hit the collision, they do offload. But when they do hit the collision, you know, the accuracy of the clean out, you know, the body height that the play, you know, it's it's like they're like planes taking off. You know, they're so 
accurate and powerful the way they clear the ball so they're continually creating quick ball to play you know to play like a a ruck and run mm-hmm. uh, style which is very difficult to beat you know and um you know they offload as well and you know people hit you know hit through the space and they support the ball carrier very well so they play a very dynamic game of rugby in and around the ball whether the ball's on the floor for the ruck or whether the ball's in the air you know, um, from an offload. So their intensity at the breakdown is, and in the contact situations, is is phenomenal. Yeah. Well, where do you stand as uh, as a coach then? Because to me, that sounds sort of like a system. Or is it more about the players? Because I don't think they have the most talented players, but I think they have the best system. Yeah, I, I think the if you coach at championship level okay if you, if you you know um if you coach championship level for example you you've got a you've got to have a framework and you've got to be a little bit more directive in that framework mm. and international rugby is about providing a framework but being a little bit less directive with the framework for the players because there's such quality players that work it out themselves jb you know mm. but you've got to make sure that there is a framework there that they can go back to if they don't make the game line and if momentum within the attack, for example, is stopped. Um, you've got to have a framework then for them to, you know, for them to, to, to restart the engine. It's like, you know, if the car cuts out, you know, if the car engine cuts out, we can't start it again. If, if the key's not in the ignition or, you know, if, if, you know, so it's that type of thing. You've got to have a framework where they can restart if they lose momentum. Um, and I think, you know, when coaches, you know, that's just my view, you know, I, I'm not a prescriptive type of coach, you know, I never tell my players, you can't do this, you can't do that, you try and develop the, you know, that they par- they can pass as, as best they can, they can tackle as best they can, they can catch a high ball as best they can, they can scrimmage, win line-up ball, just trying to maximise the potential of the individual, um, you know, to, 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 to play the game in your team, in your team system, so, the lower you go, you've got to have frameworks full stop, but then the lower you go, you're more directive. And the higher you go, you're less directive. I'm glad you said that because that is exactly exactly my next question, which means I don't have to ask it. Um, <laughs> last question for you before I let you uh, go and try and find your lost baggage from where was it, Uganda or somewhere? Yeah, we did. We, we went. We, we went to. Um, we flew from Vinduk to Kampala. Um, but then when, when we came home, we flew, we fly Vinduk, Frankfurt, London. So, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, you've got uh, one of those rare, rarest of things for a coach, a win over Toulon. <laughs> How did you go about setting that, setting that up? Um, it was, it was quite a challenging week, the week before where we didn't prepare. We, we prepared thoroughly, but we prepared slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, with with limited intensity, and when you play in Europe, you've got to be thorough, but you've got to you've got to train with intensity, and you've got to taper that intensity back as the game gets closer. And we didn't quite do that against Exeter; we got beaten badly. Mm. And there was a bit of soul searching, you know, from myself and the players. And you know, we just we looked at right. We're playing against some of the great, you know, best players in the world. But what some of the best players in the world want, you know, is is time and space to do, the, you know, to do their stuff, you know, um, you know, and we knew it was, you know, they had a lot of big forwards, 
Uh, they were coming and playing on the 4G pitch, the plastic pitch, which they wouldn't mm-hmm. be used to playing on regularly. So we, we basically looked at, you know, we looked at a character that the team needed to show in the, in the game. And we looked at doing things, you know, just a little bit quicker. Because when you play great teams, they just go up the level, they go up the gears. Yeah. And they go from first to second to third to fourth to fifth. And then if you allow them to get to fifth, or when they do get to fifth, if you can't stay with them and try and go to the sixth gear yourself, you're, you're, you're struggling. So, you know, we talked about going up the gears against them, just getting off the floor quickly. We just talked about doing things quicker than we normally do them. Um, and and try to retain the accuracy uh, and the control when we actually try to go up the gears, you know, JV, and that's what we did, and that's how we, you know, that's how we beat them when, you know, when their big forwards are coming round the corner, first, second, third phase, you know, sometimes you know the defence runs out on the fourth phase, but we were there on yeah. the fourth phase and even the fifth phase. So when they were trying to go up the gears, we were staying with them and we were matching them, yeah. um, and it was all down to the speed and the control and the composure that we that we used on the day, and that's how we got the win, really. Did you find them quite easy to plan for, just in terms of what a simple game plan plan they have? Well, yeah, it, it's easy to plan, but it's another story to <laughs> yeah. stop. Yeah, so, you know, and and you know that was because they can turn it on. They can have a lapse three or four minutes, but then they can have a sensational three or four minutes where they may score two converted tries and. You know where you might be three nil down. You know all of a sudden you're, um, you know you're you're seventeen nil down. You know. Yeah. So uh, you know within five minutes. So you know you've got to stay with them and you've got to you know you've got to you've got to you know you've got to stick in there and it, they have got a simple game plan. But you know they've also got more than one player. That, you know they've got fifteen blokes that can run hard. So you know you you've you've got to stop fifteen blokes for eighty minutes. Um, you know because they've all got ball carrying ability for example you know well regardless of how you did it it was an incredible result and uh, I think you were the prior to the Wasps victory over them so they've lost against Racing they lost against Wasps but I think you guys were the last people people to beat them and that's in a space of three years mm, yeah well, they're an amazing team that's for sure yeah. Well, Phil, thank you so much for joining me on the Rugby Dungeon. Uh, I understand you're up in Manchester soon, so we'll have to catch up. And anytime you want to come on and talk about anything you want, you're always welcome. Pleasure, JB. Thank you very much, and, and good luck with uh, with the podcast, mate. Great idea, and uh, you know, let's let's hope it goes from strength to strength. So, thanks very much, mate. Thank you. Cheers, cheers Phil. Pleasure. Cheers, mate. Bye.